Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 29, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. And what a month this November has turned out to be. Returning to the show, it's been about four years, is UCI Law Professor Jennifer Chacon, who for the full hour will offer definitive legal analysis of the status of immigration policy heading into the Trump administration. This following the immigrant holiday celebrated by every household in the nation. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the entire hour is Jennifer Tacon, professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law. She is the author of dozens of articles and book chapters focusing on the intersection of criminal and immigration law and policy, with many works in progress pertaining to citizenship and immigration reform. This winter, she'll be teaching, and that that I'm, I, I had last winter's quarter, but what is this winter's quarter you'll this, be teaching? I, I will be teaching constitutional law to our first-year students, and I'll be teaching a seminar on non-citizens and the criminal justice system. Oh, boy, we're going to storm those gates there. I want to hear all about that. She is currently serving on the National Science Foundation Senior Advisory Panel for the Law and Social Sciences Grant for the Project Executive Relief and the Roles of Mediating Institutions in Immigration Law and Policy. Now is another perfect time for her astute analysis of the status of immigration policy on all the levels. And there, she'll talk about the way in which it sort of moves. It's sort of fluid from how it's being carried out on all of the levels, all the jurisdictions. Jennifer Chacon completed her undergraduate degree from Stanford University and her Juris Doctor, that is her law degree, from Yale Law School. Before teaching, she was a law clerk to the Honorable Sidney R. Thomas of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and an attorney with the New York law firm of Davis Polk and Wardwell. Although there are many temptations to delve into the political realm, the legal aspects of immigration policy amidst the transition to the Trumpet presidency are more than enough to consider in this hour. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jennifer Chacon. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, the death of nuance in the messages and the seriously compromised reporting for messengers during the campaign season and into the Trump presidency really must create wholesale new assignments for scholars like yourself. It's tempting to look back at 2007 through 2010 when pragmatic heads prevailed, when bipartisan legislation was poised to make a good deal of these problems go away. Professor Chacon, I believe, and I offered this moment for you, your open reflection. Well, I believe that we have a period of uncertainty ahead of us. I believe that we have we have a lot of hard work ahead of us. We have some uncertainty ahead of us in terms of what the policies toward immigrants and immigration will be. And and 
The rhetoric around the campaign doesn't leave a lot of room for optimism, but I believe that people working together can make positive changes in law. We've seen that happen before out of nowhere. The Deferred Action Program of 2012 is that. And I'm hopeful that people working together, uh, raising their voices in the political sphere, can again activate positive change in the legal sphere for the immigrants who live and work among us. I said I wouldn't talk about a political something, but I guess I there is a political legal aspect to this is where gay activism was the playbook for any vulnerable constituency in this country. And there in order for equal protection for the various documented, undocumented constituents in our society, if there isn't a familiarity that needs to come out of, uh, and it's a, it's a paradox. You make a higher profile of yourself if you're really trying to, you're not documented sufficiently. But if there's familiarity with all the demographics in the country, the way gays made themselves familiar to everybody that created this acceptance and equal protections were were codified eventually, is there a playbook here where immigration activists can run with it? Well, I think there are lessons um, from that movement, and and so I'll talk first about how I think that movement can provide a positive model, and then I'll talk about some of the limitations of that movement when we're thinking about immigration and immigration law reform. So I think in in terms of the, the model that we have, we've seen that when voices are raised, when individuals come out when individuals assert their identity, um, it does make a difference in uh, in politics. And so we saw with the gay rights movement as people were willing to uh, come out of the closet, were willing to e- explain who they are to people that they loved, that over time, this wound up having a, a positive impact on law and on policy. I think it's important to remember what a long road that was. It was relatively rapid when we think about civil rights movements, but even a relatively rapid change is, is a long road. And that there were periods of back and forth. We can think about DOMA. We can think about the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy of the 1990s. Defense of Marriage the Act. Defense of Marriage yeah. Act, right? So we have a, a lot of uh, a periods of, of time when uh, law is not moving in a positive direction, when social movements are working against headwinds that law creates. And so I think that's one lesson we can learn um, when we're thinking about immigration law, that law and policy may move in directions that are less encouraging. We may have to work against headwinds, but that doesn't necessarily mean the end of the movement. I said there were also limitations when we think about the model uh, of the gay rights right. movement okay. for, Im- for immigration. And I think one of the challenges and limitations is that we live in a nation of intense residential and occupational segregation. So when we think about gays and lesbians living in sort of all sectors of society, living in all all households and being able to bring themselves as familiar faces to people across a range of uh, back ethnic backgrounds, racial with backgrounds. With citizenship privilege. Uh, with, and many with citizenship privilege, although not all, clearly, right? Um, but but being able to bring themselves in front of a range of people, including people with power, people with economic power and political power. And I think one of the difficulties when we're thinking about racial justice or immigrant justice is that we do live in a place where it's more difficult um, for people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, racially living in racially segregated areas to, to bring their stories home to people that don't have day-to-day experience and don't even notice the people who sometimes live and work among them. So those are the those are the ways in which the the, the challenges may be different. Um, and that story of bringing yourself out and, and making yourself familiar is more challenging. That said, I think what we saw with the youth movement around immigration and the 
2010, 2011, and even before period, was immigrants who used that model of coming out and said that they were undocumented and unafraid and, and, and went to politicians like John McCain and went to the White House and sat in and said, we're here and we're not afraid and we uh, have legal rights and we also have legal needs. And that kind of willingness to put themselves out there on the really on the kind of front lines made a huge difference. So, so there are lessons and some of those lessons have been internalized and used um, by youth movements in particular. And there are also limitations. I think. Since this is community radio, a shout out to Jessica Brava, who met with Dana Rohrbacher on his turf in D.C. and was faced with, a, it was a complicated, it was, it was hard work. Let's have you break down the different status of documentation for non-citizens and the reach of equal protection clauses in the U.S. Constitution for them. Well, so I'll there's this is a complicated question and it packs yes. in a lot of different constitutional issues but i want to just sort of to simplify first of all reinforce a notion that i think is important for all of us to have in the back of our mind as we move into this kind of upcoming period of uncertainty around immigration law and that is the the sort of background notion that we all need to understand that individuals in this country have due process rights all um, individuals regardless of citizenship status that's, um, that's we just have to say that that's right like every other that's paragraph right. right so i think there is this sort of notion that if you are here without authorization or without documentation or if your documentation is lapsed that you've somehow lost all legal rights and that's just constitutionally untrue. It's also untrue by virtue of the operation of myriad statutes and regulations. So immigrants have rights regardless of legal status. So Professor Chacon, how do we remind everybody that? Because we are dealing with lots of asymmetries, false equivalencies in the way public policy is covered. How do we protect against a mythology about equal protection not applying toward undocumented individuals? Well, I think equal protection, the equal protection clause applies in very complicated ways when we think about immigration. So okay. obviously, you can't discriminate against individuals on the basis of race in general, profile, origin, etc. Right. Um, but we have seen in immigration law over the history of time, massive exceptions that have been made in terms of admissions policies. So the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example, which was in place in the late 19th century, and all kinds of national origin exclusion policies that were in place from the 1920s through the 1960s. Since 1960, we've had a facially neutral immigration policy. Policy, but it's a facially neutral immigration policy that has a lot of disparate impacts on some immigrant communities. So immigrants from Mexico face much longer wait times to reunify with family members than do people from most other countries. There are just more people waiting, and the facially neutral law has a disproportionate effect on their wait times to get their visas. So there are ways that people are experiencing the law differently by virtue of where they're from. And we can also think about the period immediately following September 11th, um, when particular countries were targeted for special registration programs. So immigrants coming from particular countries identified in the NSEERS program had to uh, deal with special registration requirements that were then used in some ways to enforce more rigorous um, immigration law against those individuals. And so it became a, a means of effectively targeting Arabs and Muslims for greater scrutiny in the immigration process. So we've seen the, that individuals are protected by by the law when they're here, and particularly around their procedural rights, but that immigration law has often made all kinds of distinctions when it comes to where people are coming from, and that the court hasn't had probably enough to say uh, about the impact that that has in, in terms of creating disparate racial outcomes. Another thing, though, that you've implied is that since September 11th, too, there's been 
there's so many changes to immigration law. That is, again, it's another complication is you need a lawyer who's really on top of that. That costs money, and money isn't available to everybody who's coming here working two to three jobs and staying on, staying, keeping a low profile. I mean, that, that aspect is very complicating yeah, so for everybody. I, I think people just woefully underestimate the complexity of immigration law. And I say this as a law professor who teaches immigration law, and every year I have students who are enthusiastic to learn immigration law. That's they why they in. take it. It's they want a, new it's, pro bono things. Right, and it's, it's, it's an, or they want to serve their, their the communities they come from. Right. Um, so they really want to take this class. They're really excited to engage with the material, and they get into the class, and they realize that it's not a sort of a abstract uh, policy discussion that, in fact, it is an incredibly complex statutory and regulatory scheme. Yeah. And the only subject that I can really compare it to is tax. Uh, it's that, that level okay. of complexity when it comes to understanding the statutes and regulations. So students come in wanting to talk about the big ideas, which we do, but we have to spend a lot of time wading through the complexities of the immigration statutes, the regulations, the operating instructions, the various administrative decisions interpreting statutes and regulations and it is it's a slog and that's for law students <laughs> being led by a law professor oh my so it's certainly not something that's easy to master on the fly and the 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 complications mask another fact of immigration law which is that when you get down to it there's a lot about immigration law that that seems fundamentally unfair and so you have the great complexity masking a lot of unfairnesses and i think when we have a general national conversation about immigration people have strong feelings they have strong passions about what they believe the law is, and they use those feelings and passions about what the law is to inform the discussion when, in fact, they often are relying on misconceptions about what the law is and how it actually operates. And so we start with a faulty premise, and we consequently don't get a very good or rich discussion about the kinds of reforms that we'd need to move in a direction that would be useful for everybody. So nuance and fine print having taken the big fat holiday in the last 18 months in the presidential campaign must have driven you mad. A. B. Are those students staying with you with that immigration policy class? So I think students, the students we have are great. Um, I think people are, yes, I think people are you know, the people who are committed to doing this work do this work in spite of the complexity of the law, in spite of the fact that it's not a well-remunerated field. I think people um, people are drawn to the work because it is incredible work, and partly because it's difficult and challenging. I think for lawyers and law students, the puzzle of the law is part of the joy uh, of the work, although in this case, it's probably a little too much joy, joy in that direction. So the students are, are certainly sticking with it, and I think you're going to see a lot of lawyers in Engage in this area more actively as you think. I, I I hope we do because okay. I think that we're going to we're going to need to see people who are willing to engage in this area and help even if that's not sort of where they spend most of their time and effort. So you said nuance had sort of taken a vacation in this in the last eighteen print. months. That's, that's I'm beating up the 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 public on thinking they can participate in this process without any fine print reading. So I you know I I think that it's it's really important to note that when people ask what does the future hold for immigration law I 
feel very uncertain in part because, as you say, we haven't really had a tough discussion about what the policies will look like um, in the coming administration. There's been a lot of rhetoric, uh, rhetoric about building a wall, which I think in the days since the election, Trump has moved away from. We've had rhetoric about deporting everybody who's present without authorization. Again, rhetoric that the president-elect has backed away from since the election. Well, he's dealing with legal, yeah, lots of legal details. So <laughs> it turns out it's what, hard. The, what does a two million mean? <laughs> what are you drawing from? What, what's right. a, what is a crime? But we'll get into some of that and right. open it all the way up. So I think that this is this is the cost of the lack of nuance, is that we actually don't know what the policy proposals are, uh, even at a very broad level. Um, we do know what some of the sort of harshest um, statements have been, but it's really difficult to ascertain what we're going to be looking at in terms of concrete policy proposals. For those of you who have just joined us, my guest for the whole hour is UCI law professor Jennifer Chacon with expertise in immigration law, criminal procedure, and criminal law, leading a seminar of sorts here on Ask a Leader on where we are at this juncture. Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about equal protection. It, it covers everyone, regardless of documentation, uh, but, um, and I, I guess. We're, there's different lines forming. You were saying there's yeah. different advantages. The regime that a person has left has to be a certain kind. It's an ideological kind of distinction made by, for immigrants coming in. The shorter, the more ideologically the administration is opposed to the regime that these immigrants come from, the shorter the line. Well, it doesn't actually work that way for all areas of, of immigration law. So I think if you were looking at an area of law like asylum and refugee law and policy, there is a long literature that looks back and says that individuals who are claiming, claiming asylum, who are coming from regimes that are unfriendly uh, toward the United States, have a better shot at getting their asylum claim heard adjudicated favorably because it's good foreign policy to uh, identify the non-favorable regime as a non-favorable regime that oppresses individuals. And it makes sense in that narrative to recognize those claims of oppression. Um, so it might be more difficult difficult and has been historically much more difficult for individuals coming from countries uh, where the regimes are backed by the United States to claim asylum. Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, classic cases in the 1980s um, where this was the case. So much harder coming from those countries um, than coming from Cuba during the same period. So that's one area where foreign policy and the views of the administration toward um, the country might have an impact on the viability of certain kinds of immigration claims. In other cases, it's just sort of the practical nature of immigration. So if we think about the long wait times for family reunification for Mexicans yeah. um, or people from the Philippines, it's not animosity toward those countries as a political matter. It's that we've enacted and Congress enacted in the 1960s this numerical system that, that basically assumed that demand was sort of equal for immigrant visas and sort of treated it that way, even though we knew even at the time that that's just not the case, that there's much higher demand from some countries and from some countries for certain kinds of visas, um, and that this means that individuals trying to come from those countries will be backlogged. And so we have, there are a lot of different uh, problems as we move across the immigration system where we see disparate effects on different populations for different reasons, right. um, not, always, uh, not always aligned with foreign policy objectives. Right. And it's a sort of delayed reaction to the so the civil war, the paramilitary, the sort of the, the lack of security where those individuals have fled, that uh, the, the government isn't codifying law that acknowledges 
how unsafe the places that they left and how rational it is and uh, how deserving they are in a in a certain metric of, of coming to a safer place, the USA. Right, and I think there's when you look at asylum law in particular, there are, okay. there are a whole host of requirements uh, that asylees uh, have to have to meet in order to be granted a claim of asylum. And and one of the clear positions that courts have taken in adjudicating asylum claims is that you can't be the victim of generalized violence or poverty. There has to be something that's specifically aimed at you on account of protected characteristics on account of your race, on account of your membership in a particular social group, on account of your political opinion. And so this means that individuals who are very vulnerable to violence and to uh, food insecurity are not necessarily uh, going to meet the legal definitions for asylum. And this is, I think, um, another way in which the law operates uh, somewhat counterintuitively for people. I think people think if you're fleeing uh, violence and war and oppression that that's an asylum claim. And that's not. Uh, an asylum claim, right? There has to be, you have to be targeted on the basis of particular characteristics, and that is the basis for the asylum claim. War, kind of displacement because of natural disasters, can be the basis of other forms of relief, like temporary protected status. But the, those, again, are, are usually handed out as uh, on a temporary basis, as the name suggests, um, yes. in response to a, sort of a, an immediate problem. And then when the period of emergency has ended, that protection also ends. I also just wanted to go back to one thing you said. You, you said equal protection applies equally to, to immigrants and citizens. And I, I just want to be clear that the court has in its doctrine made clear that the federal government in particular and state governments uh, in certain cases can create distinctions in law as between citizens and non-citizens. But that said, there are protections that apply regardless. So individuals can have their claims heard in court. Uh, they have the right to, to access the court. So really what we're talking about here are due process rights. They have Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, which goes to the racial profiling point that you made earlier. So if they feel that they've been singled out on the basis of their race for a stop or a search or a seizure. Well, that's what uh, I was going to say. assert those claims. It was actually an emotional moment mm-hmm. when I was out driving and there were, in a very short time, two people that ran a red light. They made, they made a left turn on a red for them uh, in front of me. The, the concern I had is an undocumented person could be deported for that. So... That's right, and here's why: you could be uh, you could be pulled over, you could you could be pulled over for committing the traffic violation, depending on the nature of the police officer who pulled you over, depending on his departmental policies. Big that, depending on the big big right. D. Okay, it depends on the you know the individual officer and how they choose to exercise their discretion. It depends on their departmental policies. Um, some departments have. Uh, policies that would, in, if they were running the records check, uh, they they might also communicate with Immigration and Customs Enforcement if the individual was present without authorization, and if ICE chose to issue a detainer for that individual, then that person, or or to otherwise pursue deportation against them, that then that person could be removed. But what I think is important to flag yes. there is how much discretion sort of goes into that moment. And it does mean that immigrant communities are policed differently depending on where you go and you can talk to people and they'll talk about places where they feel safe and where they don't feel safe, where they feel like law enforcement is likely to exercise discretion negatively against them. 
and it will result in potential deportation or places where law enforcement might exercise discretion against them in a negative way. But it won't have deportation consequences. It just may uh, result in fines or loss of a vehicle. So people are experiencing their immigration status differently in different parts of the country, in different cities, in different towns, depending a lot on not just individual officer discretion, but also law enforcement policies and and depending on state laws and what state laws require in terms of uh, collaboration and and cooperation with federal immigration officials and also depending on the presence uh, and the the presence and the and the policies of the local the local branches of the federal um, immigration enforcement agencies themselves well then uh, I would like for you, you, you've written extensively about that, that there, uh, there's such a variation in enforcement around the country, and, it's, uh, and that, is, that variation is undermining the, the legal, co- I've got to find out where, where it was, but I, there is, I guess it's the liminal legality that you talk about, and that there's, the enforcements can lead to a better understanding of common experiences of certain non-citizen citizens, you say, citizens, non-citizens experience declining legal practice protections in the wake of expansion of immigration enforcement. So, it, you know, Joe Arapaio, who's no longer in office, ha- was able to carry out, enforce certain things, and, and certain states will have codified certain provisions, but there is such a variation that it, what that does to immigration law and consistency throughout the country... Yeah, so I think there is um, there has always been the sort of legal assertion that the federal government is responsible for immigration law and policy. The federal government is, in fact, the only branch of government that can remove individuals, deport individuals uh, for immigration violations. Um, so they do possess sort of sole enforcement policy when it comes to immigration law, and the, and the federal government has the sole power to determine the criteria for admission, who will be admitted, what the you know, temporary or permanent basis, what the requirements for natural will be. That's what Congress does. And so the assumption has always been that that leads to a uniform policy, a uniform immigration policy. And I think what we're seeing is that that's just not the case. It's it's becoming pronouncedly different um, depending on the states, localities, and communities where individuals live. And this is a trend that I think really began accelerating in the mid-1990s um, and then probably picked up a lot of steam uh, post-2011 as there was increasing resources dedicated to to immigration enforcement. But what it meant was that different localities were making different determinations about how they saw the role of immigrants in their communities. And so you saw things like Arizona enacting SB 1070, uh, yes. sort of a decision that they would do everything within their power, not just collaborate with and work with the federal government, but as the Supreme Court found, sort of overstepping their role in in sort of trying to lead the federal government in, in immigration enforcement. Become policy. a little substation for the deportation. So infrastructure. Right. So there was that choice made at the level of Arizona. And also you can look at localities, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, Farmers Branch, Texas, that enacted local ordinances that that really tried to target individuals who lacked authorization by enacting policies that said that landlords needed to be responsible for checking immigration status or that employers in those jurisdictions uh, had to bear that responsibility. Um, So you saw that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you saw states and localities that try to take a more protective stance, that have said uh, that that they have policies of non-cooperation with federal immigration enforcement officials, meaning that unless they, they don't turn over information that they're not required to turn over to federal immigration enforcement officials. And they officials. are not. Uh, it, that, what is that intersection between 
local law enforcement and the immigration. So I, I, I there's it's it's very complicated. But let me take just one. Give us a. Uh, little, I'll give you a slice a, uh, of one of the issues that has been sort of bubbling around for a while, and and that is the issue of who uh, uh, of when uh, localities. Uh, have the obligation to detain non-citizens who are in their custody past the time where they would otherwise detain them uh, for uh, purposes of immigration enforcement. And so for a time when an individual was arrested by a, a local law enforcement agent, uh, was processed, and if local lo- the local law enforcement agent decided, we're done here, this per- we're not going to prosecute or this person can be released, the federal government was in certain cases issuing detainers and saying, we want you to hold them longer for us. And and there was and a- why do they know? Because some, there is a vehicle because there's, to inform right, them. Be- because all information... The databases. The databases, right. So, so when, when, these, when these arrests are effectuated individuals information is run through the databases and and there is database information sharing and so DHS Department of Homeland Security uh, is made aware of individuals once they've been arrested so certain localities have made uh, enacted policies that are more protective about the decision about whether to arrest or not with the knowledge that once they've made that decision to arrest then DHS has that information and and could act on it so if you don't really want to make the arrest or you think there's no good reason for doing that then there's an extra set of breaks that may go into place in certain localities once a person has been moved to the arrest stage whether or not they're going to be criminally prosecuted whether or not they're guilty of the offense that information is communicated with the federal government. And at that point, the federal government makes the decision about whether to act or not. And in some cases, they don't act um, because they don't think this is worth pursuing. But when they do, one of the mechanisms that they have employed is the issuing of a detainer, saying, hold this person. And there's been a fair amount of litigation (laughs) around the detainer. And the reason is because the state and local or local entity that makes makes the initial arrest no longer at some point has the authority to hold if they don't have probable cause if if the kind of period for holding an individual has has expired for purposes of state and local law then this detention is illegal unless there's some other basis um, for but somebody um, has to be the adult in that process right. to uh, exercise the <laughs> oversight and that that's not happening so the problem has been that what, what we've seen actually happening is individuals asserting Fourth Amendment claims for unreasonable seizures because okay. they're is no basis for their detention and winning those cases because there is no basis for their detention. And one of the consequences of this has been that many states and localities have said, well, then we don't want to do this. We don't want to hold people if the hold is illegal, if they can sue us for holding them illegally, um, <laughs> and, and and then we're on the hook for any fines or consequences for, for, for upholding someone beyond the period that the law allows. Uh, and so that has resulted, I think, in many localities saying, look, if you, as federal enforcement, if you want to take custody of somebody, but we can't hold them on your request in the absence of a reason, a legal reason to hold. But Professor Tacon, in, uh, in reality, though, they're very Variation could occur within one local jurisdiction. There could be one particip- one one officer who wants to put that arrest on that person's record. I think um, that's true always. I mean, I think when we think about any time uh, law enforcement exercises discretion, when they decide to whether to give you the ticket or let you go, whether to arrest you or not arrest you. So um, they could be there. There's a great deal of 
individual discretion. The pipeline there. Yeah. I've got the lever. I do. So so individual discretion always matters. I do think that departmental policies and procedures and norms matter too, right? Because I think individuals respond to the climate of the workplace in which they work. Yes. Um, And if individuals feel that certain conduct will be rewarded, they're likely to engage in that conduct. And if they feel that certain conduct will be punished or frowned upon, they're less likely to engage. You know, they're less likely to engage. So I do think that departmental policies matter um, and help to shape priorities. And that's true across the board with regard to policing priorities, whether it be in the area of immigration or whether it be in the area of typical kind of street level policing, crime control. Right? Departmental policies and attitudes matter and shape how individuals exercise their discretion. But at the end of the day, you do, you know, individuals do have a great deal of discretion in those one-on-one interactions. No pause for thinking. So you've mentioned the database now, and I want to make sure we take up, it's so important, where the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals and the Deferred Action for Parents, DACA and DAPA, respectively, they are in varying stages of the pipeline of DACA processing. Now, there's no new DACA applicants. That that stopped when the, was it the Eastern Texas or was it the Alabama Circuit Court has put an injunction on the Obama administration administering the DACA and the DAPA programs. Okay, so the there are two different kind of pieces to DACA. There's the original Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program that was announced in November of 2012. That program did face some legal challenges in court. Um, those legal challenges were rejected by the Fifth Circuit and among other uh, among other courts and actually proceeded. Um, and so in in 2012, the Obama administration allowed people to move forward in sort of applying to USCIS, asserting that they met the criteria for deferred action, and then granting deferred action to those individuals that met the criteria. And so deferred action meant that they were non-priority for for removal, um, that they would, uh, by virtue of regulations that were enacted in the 1980s, um, would be granted um, employment authorization, and by virtue of regulations enacted in the 1990s, would also have access to Social Security number. And so, so you had deferred action, right, non-prosecution decision, and then that linked to certain benefits by virtue of the operation of some regulations. Um, and so that program did go into effect, and actually over a million uh, young arrivals have benefited from the program. So they have applied through USCIS. Uh, they've been identified as individuals who are low priority for removal. They have deferred action status. They have work authorizations. They've been able to get driver's licenses. And um, what does USAIS stand for? Oh, USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, oh, okay. um, which is one branch of the Department of Homeland Security that handles visa processing and other forms of immigration services. So those individuals have deferred action status, um, and it is a temporary status. They have to that's the rub. They have to apply for renewal every two years. They have to pay the renewal fee every two years. It's currently four hundred sixty-five dollars and scheduled to increase. Um, So they generally have been individuals whose status was about to lapse have generally been applying three to four months before their status expired, so that they could renew and continue in their status with with continue to have their employment authorization and their driver's licenses. The the question with regard to that particular program, uh, in order to qualify for that program, you had to meet a certain age limit. So there were people who, Aged although up. they arrived as children, um, were too old yeah. 
for the, you know by, by by a period of a day or a week or a month um, and so it, there was a sort of arbitrariness to it there were a lot of people who seemed who otherwise met the criteria but by virtue of some small problems um, were not in that group um, but for the group that was identified for DACA people still have their status they've been able to renew provided that they don't have any uneligibilities that develop while they have it and so that group is still there well during the campaign president-elect Trump indicated that he planned to to uh, to end the DACA program on day one in office which would mean that he would presumably rescind President Obama's executive order on deferred action or the Department of Homeland Security's uh, guidance on deferred action and that individuals would uh, not be able to apply for renewals and might possibly also um, uh, although this is more legally questionable might also have to give up this their driver's licenses and employment authorizations effective immediately that i think is subject to legal question really but okay. the but the bigger issue now is i think trump is again this is where we just don't know where things are going trump has sort of backed away from this rhetoric uh, of sort of immediately rescinding daca and it's really not clear i think to anybody right now what his plan on day one in the offices or even day two or three with regard to deferred action he's sent mixed signals. He recently said something like, it would be great to keep the terrific ones, quote unquote. I think by saying that, he was suggesting that individuals who are like the deferred action recipients who have no encounters with law enforcement, who have been in school, who have been studying, who have been here really for long periods of time and have shown their ties to the community, that those individuals might be allowed to stay. But then I don't know what he means by terrific and who, who he no, puts we don't into know that, that category. But, but my concern is, Professor Chacon, is there is now a database of people that are not documented. And I don't... What are you telling them? Other, I mean, there there are so many messages of solidarity and all that. But what? And we we're going to give in the summary of the podcast if we can't mention it on air now. But there are places to go. But what? In a brief stroke here, what are they doing with being so out there with all their all the identifying information? So I think this is one of the questions: is if, if individuals who had come forward uh, and sought deferred action as part of that process gave information about their address um, and, and other personal identification information so that a database check could be run on them. So they gave that information to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services as part of the process. So U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has that information on file. And USCIS is, of course, one branch of the Department of Homeland Security. So when the the information was provided, um, there was an agreement within the Department of Homeland Security that this information generally would not be shared with with ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, Well, that's side. in one administration. Right, We exactly. have a different administration. It, so one question is, this is just a matter of departmental policy and, and, and a kind of administrative policy. It's not something that is required by statute or constitution. So one question is, now all of this information, which has been sitting in one Department of Homeland Security database, is potentially available to another Department of Homeland, the Department of Homeland Security's enforcement agents. And what does that mean for for individuals who have given this information to DHS in connection with the DACA program. And there again, I think we don't know. So the the precise answer is 
that I believe that ICE could access that information and that there wouldn't be many legal impediments to their accessing that information. I can't imagine there would be. Um, and so that means they can, they have the possibility of identifying these individuals who have applied and knowing where they lived or uh, where they live or at least where they lived when they last applied for deferred action status. The question is whether that's where they want to sort of place their enforcement priority in the kind of first days or in any days um, after the Trump administration takes power. It would be basically going after a highly sympathetic group of individuals who are very deeply engaged in their communities. And that, to me, suggests that it might not be the most appealing target for the new administration. So although they technically have access to this information and could just take the really? list and, and go down it, I guess I'm, I'm hopeful um, that that won't be their first priority um, when they come into office and that and, and there are a lot of institutions, including universities. Um, there was a letter recently signed by over 300 college and university presidents. Um, and Jet Napolitano, ur- leader ur- of the UC system among them. Right. Urging the new administration to actually keep the DACA program in place as a matter of both uh, national importance and humanitarian concerns. So there are a lot of uh, political forces that push against certainly a mass uh, deportation of individuals whose information is in the database. Um, But there's even forces that are pushing in favor of, if not an extension of DACA, then something that sort of recognizes the importance of these individuals uh, to their communities. So I think if I were kind of speaking to people who had deferred action status now, my first message would be not to panic, um, that obviously it's a time of great uncertainty and no one can know what the future holds. But, but it's also a good time to sort of take stock without panicking to make sure that individuals are, um, are feeling as safe as they can, identifying people in the community who are resources to them and sources of potential legal help if they need it. But also, I think, not worrying excessively uh, yet uh, about what, uh, what the policies will be in January, February, March. I think we just don't know. A, a, a quick answer to this question. So is in the the field, are there a lot of professional uh, established attorneys that are lining up to help out with the pro bono need here? So, so just a real short one, because I'm going to get back to with this shoe dropping with the people that are being appointed. Yes, there are. Um, and I think there are lots of well-known national organizations that have lawyers on their staff and, and local organizations, the Public Law Center, Public Council, uh, NILC, MALDEF, all of these organizations yes. are either have lawyers who are at the ready uh, organizations like Ares and, you know, providing individual services or are publishing information on their websites um, to help provide some guidance to individuals who are navigating uncertainty in this period. So there are resources that are available. I think I would want to insert and, and should insert a caveat there, which is that there are also probably a lot of people who are willing to profit off fear and anxiety. And I think one of the things that people need to take care about is if someone is offering you immigration relief that sounds too good to be true, um, then it it may be too good to be true. Um, And so that's an important advisory. You you both want to make sure that you are uh, getting information from a reputable person and also that you're not rushing into decisions that might actually be more problematic in the long run than helpful. For example, putting forward an application for an immigration status that you don't qualify for, which will not only not get you an immigration benefit, but will also bring your information to the attention of DHS. Um, So so I think people should just proceed cautiously um, and make sure that they're getting good legal counsel and not not panicking and trying to get legal counsel wherever it might be had. And if people are telling you that you can pay a lot of money for some form of wonderful relief, 
that's probably not advice that you want to take. For those of you who've just joined us, for this whole hour, we've had the enormous privilege of the astute professor of law, Jennifer Chacon, with her expertise in immigration law, criminal procedure, and criminal law. And so I want as we're talking about the shoe dropping with the incoming Trump administration, you're you're saying that it's a would be a big thing to take up what is sitting in that database for DACA and DAPA applicants. But the Attorney General nominee Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions and the Kansas uh, Secretary of State Chris Kobach have made a point of not just undocumented immigration uh, constituency here, but they're they're wanting. Immigration that's legal to to be reversed as well. So I thinking they've fetishized almost immigration policy, and I don't know if there's a backstop to their raiding that stash. Yeah. So I guess two things. First of all, you you said DACA and DAPA, the DACA DAPA database. The the I guess the upside of the DAPA program never having gone into effect and having been enjoined oh, so before implementation means that there is no DAPA database. Okay. Um, so it's just, it, it is right. it is really limited to DACA at this point in time. There are individuals who prepared for DAPA um, with immigration providers, but they never actually filed with the federal government. Um, with regard to Session and Kobach, yeah, you know, I think if we look at their policies on immigration, and if we if we were to assume that those policies will be the policies of the new administration, then, you know, then it's really hard for me to see the the, the sort of, it, it, it would be hard for me to strongly assert the comforting statement I've just given. I, think I understand. <laughs> and I want to say, yeah. it, it just occurs to me that we, ha- we can see, a, it's not a pattern, but we've seen before where a fetish, the attorney general from Missouri, I'm blanking on his name right now, the Bush administration, John Ashcroft, fetishized obscenity where it was manifest and he wanted to make sure that the 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 lady with the scales had her breast covered and 911 is on its way to being carried out so i can imagine some sort of similar kind of a debacle in in the works here in the trump administration yeah we've been warned so (laughs) sorry we weren't supposed to sound the panic but it's but there's there's an example though of the eye was not on the ball so I think that when we think about these two names in particular, we see some of the most hardline immigration restrictionists in the political sphere. Um, and so we're looking at, with Chris Kobach, the author, um, kind of architect behind SB 1070 and a lot of the local ordinances that were restrictionist. When we think about Jeff Sessions, somebody who is opposed, consistently opposed comprehensive immigration reform bills, among other things. If that is the policy of this new administration, then I think we can expect to see a significant and indiscriminate um, policies of enforcement. And it may be that low-hanging fruit, like people who are already in the database, um, would be an appealing target for those individuals. I do think that there will be some uh, political correction, uh, some political opposition to some of those moves that might make them less appealing. And this is true, not just coming from Democrats or kind of the, the, you know, the most immigrant friendly among us, but also true among moderate Republicans who supported comprehensive immigration reform, people like John McCain, who I think Olympia Snow, Olympia Snow, who I think at at some point are just not going to be that excited about an administration or working with or 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 standing by while an administration just pulls out all the stops against um, longtime lawfully abiding residents. And so I, I do think there's a political balance that the new administration will have to strike. That said, even striking with even within the zone of striking political balance, this 
administration's immigration policies will look very different from the last administration's immigration policies. I think we will see um, more concerted enforcement efforts. We probably will see more enforcement at workplaces. We probably will see more willingness to engage in the kinds of raids that we saw in the early period of the Bush administration, the later period of the Bush administration. Um, So I think we're going to see more visible, high-profile enforcement efforts, regardless of what else happens. The real question will be around how tailored or targeted those enforcement efforts are, um, not around whether they happen or not. So, man. Well, one one thing you mentioned, too, in the unevenness of this enforcement is there is a cost. I want, if, I, I want to make sure we get into that. And I want to also, if maybe we... We could just leave it at that, that there, it, there is a cost, a social cost, an opportunity cost in, in chasing after some of those, those cases unevenly there. Um, I also want for you to be able to take up what the certainty of there, there's much infrastructure that's going to be proposed to be privatized, a privatized deportation incarceration infrastructure is a concern. So we already have a pretty heavily privatized immigration detention system. Private companies operate approximately more than, I think at this point, 60% of the bed more space that's occupied by immigrant detainees. And, and let's just be clear, immigrant detainees are not individuals who are serving criminal sentences for crimes. Immigrant detainees are individuals who are in civil detention pending removal. And the nature of immigration detention is very indeterminate. So it's, it's often not clear how long you're going to be in immigration detention. So some people are in immigration detention for a matter of days. Many people, particularly longtime lawful permanent residents who have a stake in fighting their cases, can be in immigration detention for months and years. And they can be moved into a whole other region. And from they can where be, yes, and they can be moved um, and have been um, often moved uh, to different regions where different uh, circuit law applies, where their access to counsel may be more limited, where their access to family members it may be non-existent. There, there has been, I think, in recent years it, within uh, the Department of Homeland Security efforts to, to reduce the number of sort of arbitrary transfers and to provide more information about where immigrants are moving within the system. Those, again, are internal administrative policies that we could see uh, given less uh, concern um, by the incoming administration. So we might see, again, more opaque and frequent transfers of immigrants among detention centers. And as I said, 60% of current um, immigration detention bed space is operated by private companies. In August of this year, uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Johnson began, uh, ordered the beginning of an investigation into private uh, detention facilities. As you may remember, the Department of Justice announced uh, under, uh, that they plan to phase out private prisons within the criminal justice, the federal criminal justice That's an system. executive decision. Right. It Again, something reversed. that could be reversed. But when they made that announcement, there was pressure on DHS to re-examine their practices, particularly given how highly privatized immigration detention is. Johnson announced that they would begin a three-month investigation. That three-month investigation is actually, I think, scheduled to end tomorrow, today, then they were supposed to make findings or recommendations uh, about whether and how private detention facilities fared relative to publics, whether they pr- were providing cost-effective and decent Can you come uh, back conditions. and one out there? I, <laughs> sure. I, I want to make sure that we, uh, anybody on any, uh, with any platform that we're going to hear loudly and clearly, because that is one big black hole, yes. those private 
agencies. So the so the notion was that they would make their report and then presumably the administration would make some decision about whether to continue with private facilities, whether to phase them out. Phasing them out poses huge difficulties for DHS given how how vast uh, the private stake is here. On the other hand, a lot of immigration detention really isn't necessary. These are individuals that pose neither flight risk nor danger to the community, but but they but are But it's an eye but, the beholder. But they are but they are detained uh, pursuant to certain interpretations of federal law. Um, so the, the idea was that perhaps immigration detention could be uh, made more public uh, and perhaps immigration detention could be streamlined. I think that both of those suppositions are probably not to be uh, in the upcoming administration. We're likely to see the continuation of the use of private providers, perhaps the reinstitution of the use of private providers in the federal correctional system. They've not been phased out yet anyway, so it'd be pretty easy for the administration, new administration to stay the course on the use of privates and, and potentially expand them. And add to them. Well, I'm going to, this is the shorthand, the longer hand is going to go on the podcast summary for any undocumented UC student or an undocumented direct family member of the UC system student, you qualify for assistance. I'm going to put the website on my summary and also students may qualify for assistance with their DACA renew applications or screening for other potential remedies, but they need to get a hold of the the University of California Undocumented Students Legal Services Center for information. And I'll I'll put up the number and the websites and all that kind of a thing. So, well, Jennifer Chacon, are you going to be giving any talks in the future that we can find out? Now, we know that people have to sign up for that immigration class that you're going to be teaching in the winter, (laughs) but that's just for law students only. But are there other places that you're going to be speaking? I'm speaking at several conferences, um, probably not open to the public, including the um, Association of American Law Schools annual meeting. I'm speaking on panels both about refugee and asylum issues and on panels relating to executive power and immigration policy. So that's coming up in January in San Francisco. And then beyond that, who knows? Well, we we want for people to be vigilant. We want if people... Maybe don't see themselves as the demographic. There is there's marching orders for people to find how they can keep the visibility of of disappearing clients in in various pipelines in the immigration legal situation here. So, I want to thank my guest. Jennifer Chacon, the law professor at UCI with expertise in immigration law, criminal procedure, and criminal law. Jennifer Chacon, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm so glad you could be here with us. So I'm going to close with a suggestion and observation. I'd like to uh, have you consider the footprint of your holiday shopping, all your shopping. Choices always have consequences. The observation pertains to social media's echo chambers. First, the unthinkable becomes not only thinkable, but also sayable. Then what becomes sayable, or perhaps shareable, becomes doable. I want folks to know that on this Friday, December 2nd, 8 o'clock, UCI Law School Dean and University Synagogue member Erwin Chemerinsky will speak at the recent presidential elections about the implications for legislation policy in the Supreme Court at the Shabbat services led by Rabbi Rockless. And uh, this was something that had been spoken about uh, earlier and congregants wanted to pursue this further and I am given permission from the synagogue's education uh, chair there that you're all welcome to join there and that was my wrap next week climate scientist Michael Mann will tell us many stories leading up to his new book The Madhouse Effect how climate change denial is threatening our planet destroying our politics and driving us crazy 
just in time for the holidays and just in time on Ask a Leader. Next on these airwaves is Natalia Fagundes filling the voids. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.